You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Eshet. Today, we have a very special guest, Nemanja Lukic from the Anti-Imperialism Network, and we will learn about why imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism. So, I know that you're from the former Yugoslavia, and I think the answer is obvious as to what got you interested in imperialism, but can you just tell our audience how you became interested (laughs) in imperialism? Yes, uh, excellent. Uh, so uh, thank you for having me. I'm uh, uh, very glad to be on your show. So yes, uh, as you said, I'm from ex-Yugoslavia and that actually gives you a kind of a, a practical experience when it comes to uh, to imperialism. So, uh, you know, at some point in your life, you know, when, when uh, bad things start happening, you just uh, start to wonder, you know, why it is like that, you know, so how and you know you just start uh, asking yourself questions to understand better what have you done or what have others done for this to happen and that's uh, basically how uh, i got to understand that uh, imperialism is basically the uh, main contradiction that you can find in the world when it comes to politics of oppression so that's basically uh, what was the main uh, motivation behind it Yeah. So a lot of people, this one I actually learned from your website, but a lot of people don't understand what exactly is the imperial core and the imperial periphery. So do you want to give them a quick explanation? Yeah, sure. So uh, when we're talking about concepts of core and periphery, we're actually talking about the structure. Of, uh, of of imperialism as a uh, in terms of a system, right? So the actual concept of core and periphery is uh, is actually quite old. Uh, originally, it was used by dependency theorists. I think starting with uh, Rob Prebish, uh, who was uh, in fact not even a, a Marxist. Um, however, uh, and uh, the interesting bit about that is that uh, he was. Uh, hiding uh, the origin of those terms because uh, apparently he was highly influenced uh, at some point by a Romanian fascist scholar mm-hmm. uh, called uh, Manolescu. So uh, it's actually a speculation that uh, he got those terms from uh, from him. Uh, however, there are similar concepts which were used by, by Bolsheviks as well. So it, it really depends on... Um, uh, I mean, the or, the origin is the way we're, we're using it now. It's in in role uh, Pravish's conception through dependence theory. It actually got into a world systems theory where when it uh, got well started uh, being more widely used. Right. So in uh, world systems conception, which is uh, the way it is currently being used, core is meant to be a zone which is draining periphery the other zone out of value so ah that's a really good analogy thank you yeah so uh, the whole base uh, the whole idea of a uh, core periphery hierarchy is that there is a zone which is producing value and there is a zone which is consuming and capturing that value so it, it, it it's kind of a, a concept which is uh, denoting a flow of value or transfer of value from one part to another 
Uh, however, it's uh, very important to know that this uh, this concept is not necessarily geographical. So it's uh, it's a, a concept which can be used uh, even uh, as an analogy to classes uh, and, and and actually social structures. Beyond that, when actually applied to geography, it does not have to be uh, necessarily completely tied to uh, nation states. Uh, it can be uh, used uh, within you know, uh, regions, within states, or globally. So. Uh, it's simply a, a concept which is uh, describing uh, how uh, value is produced in one place and uh, captured and well enjoyed, so to speak, uh, in, in some other place. So, in, in this in these terms, uh, if we're talking about uh, world system, uh, typically in in every anal uh, analysis, it is mostly used to denote uh, countries which are creating and uh, producing value. Uh, like periphery ones, and uh, the the core, the imperialist countries, which are simply converting into into their own development. However, uh, what is different from uh, dependency theory and uh, world system uh, analysis is that Wallerstein included a concept of semi-periphery, which is kind of a layer between those two, and this is where things get uh, slightly complicated because. Uh, in his conception, semi-periphery is a zone which is acting as a proxy. So it acts as imperialist towards periphery. However, it does uh, act as periphery towards core. So what you actually have is a kind of a zone, or uh, in this case, we can uh, identify it with a set of countries uh, like uh, uh, Russia, China, possibly Iran, which is uh, acting as a, a regional power. And uh, towards periphery, they actually uh, capture value, but towards core, they are losing all, the, all that value. So this is uh, kind of a gray area, which is quite interesting, actually, to explore and to understand. Yeah, actually, my first example was I was just thinking about maybe Colombia, because in that region, but you're right. And I guess this is one of the primary reasons why we have countries like United Kingdom, the United States that are wealthy, while there are other countries like Congo uh, or just about any other country in the world um, that are very poor, right? Right, right. So it's a, it's, it's, let's say a historical process, right? <laughs> <laughs> By the way, what got me really interested, I don't know if you remember, but almost a year ago, you wrote an article called towards a transnational movement, anti-systemic movement. Can you talk a right. little bit about that and what motivated you to write that article and what you think the people misunderstand most about just about everything about the world, I guess, in regards to imperialism? Right. So th those are two quite kind of wide questions. But OK, so let's, let's start with the uh, with transnational and systemic movement. Right. So the uh, my motivation behind that, uh, that article was several uh, past several years. The whole topic of the necessity of new international has been uh, growing in, in popularity. So well, there have been a systemic crisis. Uh, and the, the reaction is so basically the, the people uh, recognize the necessity to organize and actually to do something about it. So to actually move towards a different and a, and a better world. Uh, one of the 
initiatives in, in that uh, respect was uh, Samir Amin's call to build a new international. However, uh, when you take a look at the experience of past uh, movements, like um, on one hand, uh, World Social Forum and the past internationals, there have been uh, several, let's say, issues uh, which really uh, didn't work in favor of its uh, effectiveness. So, for example, if uh, basically the, my idea of this article was, uh, well, we simply need to organize on the global scale. However, I, did, I wanted to avoid using terms from the past for several reasons. So, for example, why transnational and uh, not international? Uh, when you talk about uh, international solidarity, uh, you're actually talking about uh, movements which are mainly focused on the local uh, activity with kind of a secondary focus on solidarity. So you, you have your communist party or uh, whatever kind of organization which is working locally and the aim is to take power and, and whatnot. And then uh, as a secondary activity, kind of uh, you, you're working on solidarity with other peoples, other, uh, other nations, other struggles, and so on. Uh, however, what, what I believe the key is, and that's transnational organizing. That means that the focus has to be uh, from day one on the whole, whole system, whole, uh, so imperialism as a whole system, whole, whole world, right? So uh, the idea is to identify uh, where to focus and how to focus global struggle. So that local uh, local struggles would be actually fighting for the global one and not the other way around. So, and when it comes to uh, anti-systemic and why not, for example, uh, I don't know, uh, communist, revolutionary, uh, anti-imperialist or something. So um, uh, in, in this case, we, we could probably understand anti-systemic as uh, anti-imperialist. But the idea is, if you understand imperialism as a system uh, with, with capitalist, economy as uh, infrastructure and this you know, military, political and cultural domination as superstructure, then what's really important to understand is that you, you could have movements uh, and organizations that call themselves communist and they and actually they, they think they fight for socialism, for revolution, but they uh, might end up in a, a situation where, in which they are effectively supporting imperialism as a system and reinforcing it and reproducing it rather than fighting against it. Uh, so when, when we're talking about anti-systemic movements, we're talking about movements which have such an effect on the system that they modify, that they change it, that they uh, transform it or bring it to crisis or, or whatever. So basically weakening, uh, weakening the uh, structure of, of, of imperialism. And in this case, it might be even uh, unconscious. It does not, does not necessarily have to be a conscious action. Uh, it's, it's a bit confusing and abstract when explained like this, but consider, for example, all the um, uh, re revolutionary organizations, so-called, or, or communists, which are supporting uh, NATO interventions in name of some abstract democracy, which is completely absurd. Oh, my God, yes. And on the other hand, uh, as, as a different, thing, uh, more positive uh, example, you could have like uh, indigenous uh, movements in Bolivia who actually, uh, their struggle is not directly connected with struggle against imperialism as such. Uh, however, their act of uh, resistance to preserve their, their communal way of life and to preserve their land and resources is directly impacting imperialism and its uh, need to, ex uh, to expand. So imperialism and, and global capitalism 
in order to survive, it needs to uh, expand the market's uh, commodification. It needs more resources. So uh, in, in this particular case, uh, what uh, imperialist economies need, need uh, are uh, resources to fuel Green New Deal, for example, as a new round uh, or new cycle of accumulation. So in this case, we just have people who just want to live their lives uh, in a traditional way, the way they always did, which in fact, uh, living a, actually having a, a collective culture goes first uh, directly against the neoliberal ideology of individualism, and second, preserving their, their mode of life uh, in terms of uh, how they uh, work their land, how they um, organize their, their local uh, economy, prevents transnational corporations uh, from capturing those resources and actually expanding and giving more life to, um, to, the, to imprison as a system. So it's a bit long explanation, but uh, what I'm trying to illustrate here is that the movements which are not necessarily uh, revolutionary communist, but their effect on the system is uh, anti-systemic. It changes the system and it changes the system in a, in a positive direction. Well, for example, right now, I kind of see that with Peru because Pedro Castillo does not quite, uh, he wants to build a plurinational uh, nation or just what he has promised is a new constitution with all the indigenous nations represented. And just because if you have a representative constitution, it itself will automatically diffuse in a more revolutionary way. Do you agree or disagree? Uh, I, I didn't actually follow much the, uh, the... Don't worry about it. Okay. So in your article, you said that towards the end of the Second War, the main form of accumulation was through imperialism. But right after the Second World War, a lot of countries like India... I know because I'm Indian, got its independence. So what did the colonizing countries do and how did this imperialism work? Right. So uh, I think uh, uh, when we're talking about uh, imperialism, it's probably uh, good to understand that there are different methods how imperialist system was uh, accumulating wealth from different countries, right? So uh, at, at one point, so in the case of India, that, that method was colonization, right? So the colonization as a direct occupation and uh, governance of foreign territory. So Br the British just uh, came, occupied everything and imposed their rule on India and actually converted Indian economy for their own imperial needs, right? So they chose. Completely changed uh, the structure of uh, Indian economy just for 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 personal benefit. Right? However, uh, that uh, mode of accumulation or the transfer of value was not effective in the long run. So, uh, after Second World War, that changes to what, what we typically call neocolonialism. Right? So uh, states have uh, so the, the, this was this this was especially the case in in Africa where decolonization was uh, an, an actual national liberation movement were, were quite strong. They managed to get rid of the, the occupation. The problem, however, was that it was only formal. However, there were uh, still informal ways of dependence uh, between 
what's Imperial core and those X columns. Uh, and there is actually additional problem in, in all, uh, all this case is that why I'm always insisting about talking about imperialism as a system, because if you have a system, then this system is imposing certain constraints on different countries. And those constraints are uh, limiting uh, how uh, freely those countries can act in their own favor. So, for example, if you're talking about maybe uh, Cuba is actually a good example. Mm -hmm. After the Cuban Re Revolution, Cubans inherited colonial economic infrastructure. So basically, Cuba was just producing sugar. And that's, that's basically it. So they didn't have uh, anything to base their economy on. And in order to build uh, their economy, they actually have to use what they have in order to generate surplus, to create investments, to reinvest in industry and, and further development and so on. So if we project this on uh, African countries, you basically have a situation in which you don't have much of an um, economy at all. And what you have is producing very, uh, very little uh, to be able to reinvest in, in development. So uh, in that case, uh, imagine that you are, for example, a, exporting some sort of raw materials to the core, and then you're completely dependent on the prices that you will get on the, uh, on the market. Uh, in this case, we actually have uh, in play uh, something that's called unequal exchange. Unequal exchange is a concept that in the uh, exchange of commodities from a country which has uh, smaller wages to a country which has uh, higher wages, you actually lose uh, part of the, the surplus. You, you're using value. Uh, in very simple terms, this means that you're exchanging a lot of labor for a lot less labor, uh, in which case you know, uh, rich countries are uh, having all the benefits uh, while the poor countries are losing the, the bit of value they need to reinvest into their industry. So you end up in a situation that uh, no matter how revolutionary, uh, how, how many revolutionary intentions you have, you just cannot realize them because uh, that's, the, that's how the market works. And you cannot simply cut the ties with the world market because you need technology, you need, you need investments, you, you cannot do everything uh, on your own. You actually need. And because of the way some countries in Africa were partitioned, they don't have the land to even grow the food they need, right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, if if you if we are also talking about African countries in general, we have to consider the fact that there are at least I think fourteen states in Africa which still use colonial franc as their currency, and colonial franc is a currency which is completely under control of French Treasury. Okay, so all of those countries are formally independent. But in practice, they depend on French treasury and actually the needs of French economy. We just forget one thing. It's that a large part of the money in our wallet comes precisely from the exploitation of Africa for centuries. Not solely from it, but a lot comes from the exploitation of Africa. So we need to have some common sense. I don't say generosity but common sense and justice to give back to Africans, I would say, what was taken from them. 
especially since it's necessary if we want to avoid the worst upheavals or difficulties with political consequences, which it includes in the near future. You also mentioned that in the 1970s onwards, it changed from neo-colonial relationship to a neoliberal relationship with global capital. What does that mean and what happened and why? Right. So uh, up until uh, 70s, the way uh, capitalism was uh, organized in the um, the imperial core was so-called Keynesian Fordist model of production, so to speak. So to speak. So basically, you uh, you had a couple of uh, very important elements in this uh, in this formula. One was the production was typically concentrated in big enterprises. So you, you had factories which were producing. I mean, the whole product, right? Um, just they were just importing uh, raw materials, and then they would do all the uh, production and assembly in, in one place. And Keynesianism was the idea to have. Uh, social welfare, right? So uh, typically, uh, workers had very good protection in terms of uh, trade unions on one hand, so that their, let's say, uh, class struggle was institutionalized, they had their own parties, and uh, relatively high salaries, right? So they, let's say, they didn't have much of a uh, motivation to fight against the system because, you know, they, they were enjoying um, the benefits of the of the system. However, with Due to a number of reasons, this uh, model stopped, uh, simply stopped being effective uh, politically and, uh, and, and financially. So uh, uh, there actually had to be a, a change. One of the triggers was called uh, stagflation of the, of the 70s. What is that, the stagflation? Stagnation and inflation. Ah, oh, okay, good. thank you. Sorry, <laughs> right. I just got a little. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so it's, it's simply you know uh, a bad economic uh, situation, which uh, our capital accumulation was um, our profits were, let's say, in danger. So uh, then, uh, neoliberal neoliberalism uh, comes in um, comes in to save the save the day, and it does so by practically dismantling those institutionalized modes of uh, struggle for the uh, for the workers like uh, trade unions and they actually start exporting jobs there, there is another concept uh, tied to core periphery hierarchy which is commodity chains so if core periphery is the structure of the system then commodity chains are the mechanism which allow this transfer of value to happen commodity chains actually have a long history, even from the colonial period, and actually they do appear with the appearance of capitalism. But uh, with neo uh, neoliberalism, those commodity chains are getting more and more developed in a way that you now do not have production in a single factory. You actually have production in a number of factories. So uh, to illustrate, for example, I think General Motors uh, has uh, about twenty thousand providers. So. Uh, each and one of them is producing some piece of a final product, which is then being shipped and then assembled somewhere. Uh, an even more extreme example would be uh, Apple, which does not even possess a, a single factory. Uh, they, uh, they're actually in charge of the process of production, uh, design, uh, research and development. They, uh, they actually have logistics as well. They possess um, 
stores and, and so on. However, they do not produce anything. They actually coordinate uh, this uh, whole process among a number of uh, individual producers, and then they assemble it in Foxconn, which is also a different, uh, uh, different, different company. Now you mentioned that Apple does not have a single, before everything was yeah, 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 produced exactly. under one big company, and now Foxconn. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yes. So in, in, under neoliberalism, this uh, the whole process of production is uh, being modified, and these commodity chains developed in this very elaborate way allow for transnational corporations to capture bigger part of the value, and thanks to their uh, position in the market, to offload costs of production to the smaller producers. Eventually, uh, that brings also huge benefits to consumers in the in the core uh, by lowering the price uh, the prices of product they're uh, buying and at the same time this is coming in as a sort of a help for the workers because on one hand workers are losing their uh, their their rights their uh, welfare system they basically uh, all the fruits of their uh, class struggle and losing them is uh, lowering their real salary However, this loss of real salary is being compensated by cheaper products from periphery. So you have periphery with their low salaries producing uh, stuff for uh, core citizens to enjoy. And uh, actually, they, uh, they do not realize, actually, they uh, do not recognize that, <laughs> that they actually, uh, uh, the loss of their uh, uh, real income because it's being compensated with wealth, uh, with actually a, a huge number of uh, cheap products, which they can they perceive as uh, increasingly positive living standards. So that's one part of neoliberalism, and uh, another one is uh, what was uh, actually happening in this uh, in this whole period is more prominence of uh, suprastate institutions, right? So institutions which are let's say, taking part of sovereignty of nation states. You can think about, for example, uh, IMF, right? So uh, IMF, uh, United Nations Organization, even uh, European Union as a superstate uh, institution. Um, then you have NATO and, and so on. And all of those uh, institutions actually uh, serve to make sure that this economical infrastructure of the of the system is being uh, maintained reproduced and that status quo is maintained need something to do to whittle away the time on your sundays inside or outside the imperial core catch our live streams on twitch rockfin and youtube to learn more about feline friend and revolutionary vladimir Ilyich ulanov by tuning into our sundays with lenin or go to Substack and check out our other podcast episodes and newsletters at historically.substack.com. Okay, so in that case, this means that there is a good and the bad. So, for example, back in the early 1900s, since everything was kind of produced in one area, when the workers went on strike, it worked. <laughs> right. Now, I see a lot of Americans protesting or going on strike and yes it shows their disapproval but there is no functional 
equivalent. So what can be done for change in your opinion? I'm actually quite happy uh, you brought this up because this is uh, one big uh, part of uh, the whole story about uh, transnational and systemic movement, right? Because the thing is, uh, you have uh, mobility of capital, right? So you you have your work in USA. Uh, you want more uh, more rights, bigger salary, whatever. Uh, you make a strike, right? Mm-hmm. So they just, you know, if they uh, feel their profits would be in danger, they just close the business in more ways. Yes, exactly. And we've seen this happen with the Nissan factory constantly. Exactly. Uh, so it's uh, it basically that, that, <clears throat> that sort of thing happens pretty much everywhere and even actually happens in the periphery. There was a case, I think, in, in Korea when, uh, so what, what typically happens in, in peripheral uh, factories is that they hire women uh, because uh, they're simply due to um, gendered exploitation, they're cheaper. And they, they're usually hired in the uh, special economic zones, which are, uh, like let's say, uh, factories in which they do not apply m- most of the labor code. So, for oh, example, nice. it's forbidden to organize. Uh, so uh, they actually do not respect uh, minimum uh, salaries and so on. So there's a number of... Jesus Christ. So that, that, let's say that, that's pretty normal in periphery, right? However, when those people started protesting, just uh, as in USA and in Europe, they just close and move away some cheaper country where, you know, where they do not have class struggle yet and so on. The whole idea of this transnational uh, movement is that is to organize ideally through commodity chains. So, for example, if you, uh, Nissan, for example, Nissan is uh, most likely, so they have a factory in US, uh, they, uh, but they produce uh, individual pieces for the final product in a number of different countries. So uh, the idea would be uh, much like Amazon workers, in fact, to organize uh, in the whole chain of, uh, of production. So Amazon workers actually organize transnationally, but only within Amazon. So I, I know that there was a, a simultaneous uh, strike uh, in Amazon Germany, Amazon Spain, uh, possibly Amazon US, I'm not really sure. But in, in Spain and, and uh, Germany, at least it was coordinated. Uh, the, the idea would be also to coordinate strikes, as I said, through the whole chain. So imagine Inditex, for example, the, the company which owns Zara. If uh, Inditex workers would strike together with uh, workers from Bangladesh, then that would be, uh, that'd be a solution, right? Because on one hand, uh, workers in the core could support uh, the struggle for Better, better conditions in Bangladesh. And then on the other hand, uh, workers in Bangladesh could simply say, uh, you know, uh, if uh, workers in the core would, would strike, they could support them and make this struggle worthwhile. However, uh, I see that complicated uh, from happening because uh, sometimes uh, workers in one country have uh, actually interest in um, no, in no solidarity with <laughs> uh, other workers. I've noticed that at least in the United States, there's so much propaganda, misinformation. I don't know what it is where they just don't understand half the things that is going on that causes this, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, so- sometimes I always actually think about this uh, quote from, I think it's Apton Sinclair uh, who said something in terms of, you cannot make a man understand ah, I'll have to find a quote and tell you, but 
Oh, I know exactly. We'll have somebody narrate it. You, but you cannot make a man understand something that his money doesn't want to understand or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. If if his income depends on him not understanding it or something in terms of that. Yeah, exactly. And so what I notice is that they don't understand what happens if those worker states get dismantled. So can we talk a little bit about how Yugoslavia got dismantled? Right, sure. Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of Yugoslavia, it's a really painful, <laughs> painful and, and complicated. I mean, complicated because uh, even though uh, people who live there and live through everything do not have it very clear exactly what happened because people at that, at that time did not have uh, access to internet. I mean, basically, internet was still new technology. It was not widespread. Uh, there was uh, really difficult to get information other than uh, state media and state media just uh, wanted you to know what they were interested in uh, in you knowing. So as I was saying, it, it was really it was really difficult at that time to figure out what was really happening beyond what you could really see, witness, uh, and from what uh, people from your uh, surrounding were telling you. But currently, I think we have a really good uh, historical perspective and uh, more and more do, uh, documents are coming to light. So w- w- what people usually do not realize is that when it comes to Yugoslavia, it was uh, there was no big interest uh, among core countries in maintaining it the way it was. So Soviet Union uh, collapsed. Uh, socialism was not something that uh, anyone needed, especially not in, in 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 Balkans. Balkans being a region which is connecting uh, Europe uh, with with Asia. So on one hand, uh, USA actually wanted to impose, well, just to get rid of uh, socialism and impose whatever kind of a polyarchy they they thought uh, would be beneficial for them. Uh, and for uh, Europe, uh, mainly Germany, <clears throat> they actually uh, wanted to assert their their dominance and uh, uh, get most from the region uh, that they could. So it was, on one hand, a imperialist competition between Europe and and US, uh, and of course with their uh, puppets uh, in, in Balkans. So and actually they did all the warring and and uh, uh, and the conflict. So uh, what was uh, really interesting uh, is to know actually that uh, Yugoslavia at that time was quite indebted. It depended a lot on IMF credits. Uh, those IMF credits, as it's probably widely known uh, by now, is that they came with uh, what's called a structural adjustment program. Structural adjustment programs are uh, basically demands to transform uh, economy from, well, um, state-owned, socialist or whatever into a neoliberal one, uh, which is allowing uh, for uh, free market forces and actually to remove uh, regulation, restrictions, protective measures, and to privatize as as much as possible, especially when it comes to uh, state property and public property. So uh, beyond that, in in the late 80s, uh, Yugoslavia was uh, facing a crisis. Uh, actually, it needed more money. It couldn't pay off the, the debt. And at the time, U.S. Uh, issues uh, a law which is forbidden, uh, forbidding U.S. banks to issue any credit oh. to Yugoslavia until uh, each re- uh, republic is... Has its vote, right? No, yeah, I mean... Uh, 
until each republic organizes democratic elections. Quote, unquote, democratic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, <laughs> I mean, yes, uh, parliamentary elections, and basically that's how a huge number of uh, nationalist and uh, especially anti-communist parties came into being and started, well, you know, competing for power. And at that time, uh, Germany started sending weapons to Croatia. Hold on. Let me just remind people that Germany and Croatia had a very complicated relationship because in the 1930s to 40s, they set up a puppet state. And we have already recorded an episode, which will be out in a few weeks, having to do with the independent state of Croatia. But go on. (laughs) Right. Yes, exactly. So. There is a history of geopolitical interests in uh, in Balkans. At that time, the USA favored the solution of uh, one in integral Yugoslavia without splitting up, which was basically the same project that Serbs had. The reason for that was uh, most of the population of other uh, ethnic groups within Yugoslavia was uh, limited to their own uh, republics, except for Serbs, who were quite spread out due to historical reasons and not as uh, I once heard due to colonization. <laughs> Which, <laughs> no, 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 no. Opposite. The Ottoman Empire colonized that area. And yeah, that's opposite. <laughs> yes. Uh, some, I mean, the, the, the population which was living on, on this, this area, uh, area was primarily Christian, Serbian, and Croat, which was under Ottomans, let's say, structural changes, part of the... Uh, population changed their religion and part of the Christian population in order to escape persecution uh, moved, uh, actually migrated um, uh, to um, territories outside of Ottoman Empire, which which is now actually uh, Croatia. So that's, um, long story short, most of the ethnic groups were located in their own uh, respective republics, uh, except for Serbs who were spread out. And the interest of Serbian nationalism was to preserve Yugoslavia as it was in order to, for Serbs to have uh, to live in the in in same uh, political entity. Uh, others, however, uh, wanted to get their own ethnic states, which was extremely difficult because of how the population was distributed, which basically mean, meant for everyone to engage in uh, ethnic cleansing. So that was actually carried out by spreading fear, terrorism, uh, expulsion, and, of course, by war and killing. There was more and more terrorism going on within Yugoslavia in the 80s, right? Uh, I'm not really sure. I mean, 80s was, uh, for sure, um, a complicated period as well, but I think it was more... So it openly escalated in the the 90s when when the war started. But 80s was, uh, so 80s as a period was uh, marked by nationalism, but not as in the, in the more violent form. Yes, uh, either way, so uh, it was uh, basically the external forces uh, that provided support to uh, those nationalist currents, which had their projects of uh, ethnic homogenization. Uh, hom- what's called? Homogenization. Uh, yeah, yeah, got it. Yes, uh, yes in, in order to create their own ethnic uh, well, nation-states, ethnically clean. And at the point when the peace was meant to be signed, uh, in uh, so uh, that's Vance Owens' uh, peace plan, the USA figured they actually did not play correctly because on one hand, they 
didn't realize what uh, Germans were, were doing. The Germans were actually uh, winning. And they were opposing the uh, idea of placing uh, UN troops, blue helmets, in, uh, in Bosnia, actually in Bosnia. They actually wanted NATO troops to be placed. So uh, what they did was... Oh, my God. Let's just quickly explain that one of the commanders of NATO was Adolf Heusinger, who was Hitler's right-hand man. So that was very... It, it was very frightening for Yugoslavians. <laughs> right. Uh, yes, I mean, uh, what, what really happened at that, at that point was USA decided to switch sides and uh, switch their support from the idea of uh, one whole Yugoslavia, because that was not possible anymore, to Bosnian Muslim side. So uh, they actually uh, had the, the war take longer uh, until 95, when the peace was uh, signed in Dayton, which was almost the same as uh, Van Sowen's plan plus NATO. And that's except the, uh, it would have like saved way. probably thousands, if not millions, of lives if they had done it earlier. Uh, probably not millions, but yeah, significant amount. Of, yeah, I mean, uh, for for one thing, it would definitely uh, avoid uh, Srebrenica from happening and a bunch of other uh, different massacres uh, at, at the same time. Let's say that in, in the case of Yugoslavia and beyond, just uh, the war. Uh, the civil war uh there was another one uh when nato got involved directly in, in bombing and this one was a especially interesting case because the propaganda around the nato bombing of of uh of, of belgrade and, and serbia yugoslavia the small one uh at the time was that they were engaging in uh, humanitarian war to uh, prevent uh, more massacres mm -hmm. and more war crimes. However, what was a real trigger for the war was a document uh, signed in Rambouillet Castle. So that was in uh, so uh, March uh, 99, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Serbian delegation met with uh, with Kosovo delegation and NATO representatives to talk over a, a peace plan. Uh, this peace plan uh, actually did not guarantee independence to, to Kosovo, but uh, more extended political uh, political rights, uh, more actually bigger autonomy within uh, within Yugoslavia and, and Serbia. So uh, what happened was at some point uh, NATO representatives, actually uh, Madden Albright, introduced two appendices to the deal, which asked for open occupation of Serbia. So uh, Yugoslavia as, as a federal state was to guarantee full freedom of movement and uh, diplomatic immunity to NATO troops, which would be stationed there. Jesus. Basically, what happened was they they gave uh, ultimatum uh, to, uh, uh, to Yugoslav de uh, delegation. Uh, and the interesting bit was that just a day after uh, delegation returned, the parliament of Serbia ratified all the requirements for a bigger Kosovo autonomy. And so basically all the political provisions were uh, accepted and approved. However, the military provisions were uh, rejected. And that was the real reason for the, uh, for the war. So basically Yugoslavia was bombed because it uh, rejected outright uh, occupation of its territory. I hate to end this with this note, but I do want to 
this is a very sad note. And whenever I listen to Michael Pernty's um, To Kill a Nation speech, it, he always begins with Yugoslavia began with an idea and that just makes me cry. And I'm like, how did you, you make me cry for a country I've never been to and probably was not there when I was born? But um, where can people find out more about the anti-imperialist network? So uh, you can uh, you can follow the anti-imperialist network on uh, HTTPS. Well, uh, that's probably not. Uh, yeah. <laughs> sorry. A N T I. Yes. anti imperialistnet or uh, simply everything that uh, that we post on the website and even more you can find on Twitter, which is uh, anti-impnet. And thank you so much for coming. And I hope you can come back again. You know, what's really funny is that Tito kind of foresaw this with the non-aligned movement. And there is a video of Tito coming to India and all these Bollywood stars who are like young. He was pretty old by then who were like dancing with them. And he also did a Bollywood dance. So I'll send you that video later. <laughs> Have you seen that? Please do. I would, I would love. No, no, Ron. I would love <laughs> he, to see He was it, very good. <laughs> Everyone in India loved him. Yeah, yeah actually, non-alignment, non-alignment movement is uh, probably a good model for the transnational anti-systemic movement. Okay. In that case, we are definitely having you back again to talk about this. And thank you so much and have a good rest of the evening. It's evening for you, right? Uh, almost, almost. Late afternoon. Okay. So thank you very much. Have a nice day. And uh, well, uh, well, I'll be talking to you yep. soon. We'll be texting each other all the time. And I'm probably going to have to ask you for some Russian homework help. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> Thanks again. Wait, how do you say bye-bye in Serbia, Corvoat? You can just say ciao. Ciao. Bravo. Okay, cool. Ciao. Yeah. <laughs> ciao, ciao. <laughs> Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.